Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. I think human beings in general should be ready for any sort of challenges. Afghanistan is such a great example. I think for the entire world to see that one can go through so many changes over the course of a short period of time or a relatively longer period of time. I think we just need to look at the mirror, try to define ourselves and see what we can do you know, to make our world a better place. Let's live in a way that it's worth it and that we can be proud of it uh, and you know, we really make a difference even if it's uh, a small one. That was the voice of Lutfalo Najafi Zadab, who's an award-winning journalist and the director of Tolo News, which is Afghanistan's top 24-7 news and current affairs TV channel. At Tolo News, Lutfalo oversees the largest news operation in Afghanistan. He has interviewed many global leaders, including the former British Prime Minister David Cameron, the Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, the Afghan Chief Executive Abdullah Abdullah, the former U.S. NSA General H.R. McMaster, the Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, amongst many others. His international recognitions include the Reporters Without Borders prestigious Medal of Freedom Hero Award for his fight for free press in Afghanistan. He also holds the Time Magazine's title of Next Generation's Global Leaders, as well as the Forbes Magazine 30 Under 30 Asia Influencers in the Media List. Lutfullah's approach to interviewing global leaders is clear, concise, and quite provocative. This conversation gets into who Lutfullah is and the things that happened in his life that inform the type of person he is today. This is quite literally a different type of conversation where I am interviewing one of the best interviewers in the region. I had this conversation with Lutfullah during a recent trip to Tolo News Global Headquarters in Kabul, Afghanistan at the end of 2020. So without further ado, I bring you Lutfullah Najafi Zodat. Lutfala, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you, Bakhtash. Great to see you. It's great to see you too. It's great to um, to be here. Can you tell us where we are right now? Just kind of describe, you know, where we are, so people know where we're speaking. Right. We well, uh, we're very happy to have you in Kabul. Uh, we're in Kabul. We're at Tolo uh, headquarters. This is uh, the biggest media operation in the country. Uh, this is a place where we interview people, but today I'm sitting on the other side of the table. <laughs> and what an honor for me to be doing this. Um, the honor is mine. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your uh, for your efforts. And um, maybe tell us a little about your life in terms of where you're from and kind of when you came to Kabul and kind of the trajectory of your life so we can understand, okay, look, Flaw's giving us a perspective based on what experience exactly. Well, I was not born when the war began. Um, so you were born in the war? Right, 87. Born in Kabul, and then um, I think I was five, that uh, civil war really hit our part of the city. And then we had to run uh, to Ghazni in the south, uh, and then to Kabul, and then to Mazar, and then back to Kabul. Uh, so always fleeing the civil war, the, the internal conflict, uh, seeking shelter from one place to another. But in the same time, 
you know, uh, going to school, uh, trying to trying to pretend that that was normal for us. So let's talk about how life was going from place to place within Afghanistan and how it felt to live in Afghanistan during the time of the Taliban. Like we've seen a lot of movies and we've seen a lot of depictions of what life was like here. But in your mind, when you would step out of your front door to go to school or to leave the house to get food, help us understand in your own words what that environment felt like for you when you think back into your memory. I think I lived in so many cities in Afghanistan during the Taliban time. In Mazar, I was there when the Taliban uh, attacked the city in 96. And uh, we didn't leave our house uh, for, I think, three, four days because they were consistent fighting. And then when we left uh, home to go to school uh, a couple of days later, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of dead bodies everywhere on the way to school. There are some reports that uh, Taliban lost about a thousand people in that particular fight to take Mazar from Dostum. Uh, So that was a very fierce fight. The Taliban lost the battle and then they attacked Mazar again a year later and and could uh, manage to take control of the city. But in Kabul um, that I remember I think it was such a vacant city, almost a dead city, no hope, no life. People were living mostly on remittance and uh, on some incomes that they could manage from here or there, running a shop or selling groceries, basically just trying to survive. In Ghazni, I remember that my parents were trying very hard. They had zero income. I think we were selling agricultural stuff. We were selling things to buy you know, flour, to buy uh, oil, and then also to pay for my education. So help us understand what education meant at that time. What was it like? What was it like? We were lucky to have a functioning school, Taliban regime, I don't think that they were paying for the teachers. So parents were responsible for paying teachers' salaries and running running the school, basically. I think we were giving, you know, 500 AFs every month or every two months. That I remember because it was so difficult to find that money. That I remember from the Taliban time. So my picture from the five years of Taliban regime in Afghanistan is not very pleasant. Because we really didn't know, uh, you know, how a peaceful country really looked like. It's almost like you didn't know any better. That was your reality. Right. That's all you knew. Right. And then uh, we thought that was probably what we were entitled. So what's interesting about human beings is, even in the darkest times of our lives, human beings have an incredible way of finding moments of joy. It's just what human beings do. That's true. And so... During this darkness, these five years of darkness, how did people find moments of joy? What were those moments of joy? I think, I think people adopt, you know, people, uh, uh, I think circumstances change people. But also, uh, you know, there were weddings happening, there were birthdays. 
I don't think I really celebrated my birthday for the first 20 years, to be very honest with you. Mm. <laughs> and I now feel that I'm too old to celebrate it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want people to know how old you are. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think, uh, you know, people, people adjust, I would say. Um, nothing stops human beings from, as you said, finding that moment of, um, of, of life to really enjoy. So can you think back in your childhood of a moment of light in the darkness or a moment of joy? Help us understand, what did that look like in your life? Was there a moment where that happened to you specifically that you can think about right now? No, I think, I think, that, I think there are so many occasions um, that um, made us to be happy. I think one big one was, I think at some point uh, I wanted to uh, go to Iran because so many people were going to Iran to work and I'm the only son in the family. So uh, uh, my parents decided for me not to go. They wanted me to stay and, and, and go to school. And that day I was not sure if I was really happy or really sad uh, because I really wanted to go to Iran and, and, and work and make some money and send it to my parents. But also I was very happy that they didn't let me go so I could continue going to school. But in Mazar, I think in a time in Mazar, uh, it was when we left Kabul and went to Mazar. Mazar was a different world before the Taliban. It was Dostum's kingdom. Uh, he had his own currency. He had his own economy. The city was full of life. Uh, a lot of people had left Kabul and ended up in Mazar. You could almost find anything in the market, but that didn't last very long until the Taliban pushed Dostum back and took the city and then killed a lot of people. And that's the battle that you were talking about. Yes, yeah. that is, uh, I think, the first battle the Taliban lost and the second battle, the uh, Taliban took the city and then uh, as an act of revenge, they killed a lot of people, particularly minorities. Yeah, so... Would you like, can we talk about that? Can we talk about what it was like to be a minority in that time and space? What did it feel like to be a minority? I think it's always difficult, uh, but I'm also very happy that I live um, right now part of a generation or a group, you know, group of people that we are ethnic blind, who are language blind. I think we are... Um, we really don't associate ourselves based on who we are, where we come from. And I know a lot of people, to be very honest with you, uh, that uh, I didn't know until very recently, until they became politicians, that, and then I had to know for news purposes that where they come from. Uh, otherwise, I didn't know, uh, you know their backgrounds. I can't recall a very personal moment, but I know that uh, people were persecuted for the way they looked. Uh, the way they spoke, that was quite unfortunate. The reason I'm very optimistic today and very happy today is because it's not just that uh, America came to Afghanistan, spent a lot of money, but because the society has transformed. This is not just in Kabul. Uh, I think this is across the country. I was meeting with journalists from Helmand yesterday. They fled the city because of war. Uh, you know, their story is similar to my story 25 years ago. Well, we were we were always on the run, so they fled. 
a major Afghan city. They were in Kabul. But such a diverse group, they were speaking two, three languages, different languages, common pain, but at the same time, uh, I think common uh, and shared uh, hope uh, and, and resilience to go back and try to uh, go back to Helmand. And, uh, and, and for me, seeing those journalists from Helmand, uh, Hazaras and Pashtuns and then, uh, you know, other Farsi speakers, Tajiks, I think for, for me, is this, that is the Afghanistan of today. Maybe our sufferings really didn't stop, but our identity, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we engage with the world, uh, and the way uh, you know this generation of Afghans really was brought up after 9/11 is totally different. And uh, you know we're such a young country, Baghdad, uh, such a young population. Help us understand how young. Give us some figures. I think Afghanistan is one of the youngest countries in the world. Right, right. I think we're the youngest country in the world outside Africa. Two third under twenty five. Basically, two third of Afghans don't share the stories that are that you know I share from the Taliban time. They don't remember that. They were either too young or not born. That's fascinating. So for them, this is their world. Internet is their world. Free press is their world. Access to information is their world. Criticizing you know government is their world. Uh, being able to travel is their world. I think this is Afghanistan of today. And um, those of us who, uh, who remember the Taliban time and the generation uh, older than me, they remember time before the Taliban, uh, the communist time, the civil war. I think for them, they're probably even more conservative. But the younger you, you become, you're more sort of adventurous and more determined and, and more committed that uh, this country is a much better place. And some of these values are in their DNA. I think they don't really know any better. And so, so let's, let's unpack that because, you know, as somebody who's an Afghan-American, what's interesting about my notion of identity, my sense of identity, was that 9-11 was the crucial moment, the crucial event in my life that made me realize how the world saw me. So what do I mean? Lutfala, before 9-11, in the, in the context of my life in the United States, all I wanted to do was fit in with my community and my friends. Okay, so I wanted to be as American as possible, do all the things that all American kids do, play soccer, join a rock band, you know, all the things that America has to offer. And what's interesting about 9-11 is that that event happened nine days after I started my first year of college. Okay, so I was a young adult. At that point, Lutfalo, my life changed and so many others like me changed whereby the world only saw us in one way. So what I mean to say is before 9-11, you know, I went by the name Bach. I wanted to play soccer and be in a rock band and play guitar. And then 9-11 happened and then all of a sudden I started to introduce myself as my name is Bakhtosh. I'm from Afghanistan. It all of, all of a sudden right. became this defining factor of how people saw me and then also how I saw myself in relation to that. Interesting. It was really interesting. And so what I'm trying to say is that going back to your comment about not being able to escape Afghanistan is that 
even if I tried, I couldn't. Mm. Because that event makes people who are non-Afghan see me as only Afghan. Right, right. It brought you back. Yeah, quite literally brought me back, but it made me step into a place that the world needed to have. Like, okay, we need to know who are these Afghan people? What do they look like? What is Afghanistan about? And what's interesting about it is I didn't know because I grew up abroad. So, for example, Americans were asking Afghans who were recent immigrants to America what Afghanistan was about. Who they, the people that they should have been trying to reach out to was people like you. And they didn't. And there was a major disconnect. So when, whenever, like, you know, whenever 9-11 happened, a lot of Afghans came back from the United States. And it's because of this thing of like, okay, now all of a sudden 9-11 defined who we were. And sometimes Americans only saw us as Afghans. So it was, always, it was almost like we were being pushed out. Mm. Did it change your perspective uh, about America, about people, about your friends there? Yeah, I appreciate that question. All the friends that I had, those friends didn't change. My childhood friends in America, they saw me as who I was. But I think what was interesting is in college, all of a sudden I went from being a nobody to all of a sudden people wanting to either talk to me or threaten me. It was one of those two things. So it changed my perspective on not Americans, but people in general. Right. Right? It's interesting. I mean, when people get scared, they either make decisions based on fear or they make decisions based on love. And in that moment, Lutflaw, people in America made decisions based on fear because they didn't know what was happening. And Afghans are themselves in the context of the United States when 9-11 happened, we didn't know what to do. We did not know what to do. And so the Afghan community came together because all we had was ourselves. And then one layer outside of that was the Muslim community because all of a sudden all Muslims were seen as enemies of the United States, which is happening now with the Trump administration and what's happening with xenophobia. So it changed my perspective on how people react to the things that happen in their lives. Mm. And so what I would love to talk about too is when 9-11 happened here, where were you and how did it, how did your world all of a sudden shrink? I think I was in Ghazni when, when it happened and all of a sudden Afghanistan was such a big deal. The appetite for news was there and then it was much there. A lot of people were listening to radio. There was no access to television back then. The Taliban has the only state-run TV channel. Mm-hmm. But we, we thought, you know, Afghanistan will change and will change forever. You knew that then? I, I think that was when, you know, discussions across the globe happened about Afghanistan, right. particularly when um, the um, attack on the Taliban began. Then we were certain that the country will change forever. I think my father, it was my father or my uncle who wanted to sell their house in Kabul and they immediately canceled their mind. After after 9-11, they thought, you know, uh, this is not a good idea. Uh, Afghanistan will become a much better place. How interesting. So, uh, so uh, although, you know, the incident in New York uh, was so tragic uh, uh, or across across the U.S., But uh, in Afghanistan, we thought uh, that it, uh, 
you know, a bad incident, tragic incident, which killed so many people, will uh, turn Afghanistan into uh, the center of attention for the entire world. Uh, and this will be a new beginning for Afghans. It's really remarkable to hear you say that, that you knew in some sense that this was going to be a new beginning. So you have a very unique perspective that people outside of Afghanistan may not know about. So help us understand what you see in Afghanistan in terms of what the future of this place is. Okay, okay, okay. It's always great to talk about Afghanistan. This is a country that I deeply love. And um, this is a country where I'm born and raised. And I see my present and I see my future here. Afghanistan, um, unfortunately, has gone through so many ups and downs um, in the past 50, 60 years. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have had a degree of uh, stability uh, in the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I believe that uh, what we've built in the past 20 years uh, is going to remain with us for generations to come. Mm -hmm. I think I believe I'm an optimist and realist uh, to an extent that uh, we have laid uh, very strong foundations for a bright Afghanistan, for a prosperous Afghanistan, for a country that we think uh, its people uh, will uh, do all they can to make it a better place to live. It has a lot of sad sides as well. Uh, it's not new to us. Uh, maybe the rest of the world see it from their own military engagement. You know, a lot of Americans say the U.S. longest war in Afghanistan, but for... So many Afghans, to be very honest with you, the past 20 years has been the longest peace for Afghanistan. So this is such a complex situation. Mm -hmm. And people see it, you know, from different perspectives. Right, right. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's a wonderful way to kind of gain access into your perspective specifically. I think this is a great segue to talk about how Afghanistan right now is in peace talks or in the peace process now with the Taliban. How do you think the Taliban now, if they do get folded into the government, if they do become part of the government, right? Because that's what the Ghani administration wants. They're not going to essentially give up power and give up the democracy and all the gains that they've that the, the Afghan government has essentially achieved thus far. So uh, what do you think the Taliban needs to accept based on what you just shared? What is something that they need to realize based on how they started in the 1990s to who they are now? What do you think? I think the Taliban know that uh, fighting for nearly 20 years hasn't really helped them much. They have lost a lot of Afghans, a lot of people. And a lot of Afghans are also lost on this side of the war against the Taliban insurgency. And it's such a happy moment that the two sides have agreed to sit down and uh, reach a political settlement. That's what we see in Doha right now. I think uh, the current peace process is at the core of it, and uh, um, you know, an understanding, a realization that non-stop fighting and war is not the solution, is not going to get us anywhere, has been counterproductive. We have been a, a stalemate for so long. How the two will reconcile is a big question, it's a big political question. I think that's why the two sides have big teams sitting in Doha right now. And hopefully they 
come to uh, an agreement where Afghanistan of yesterday is recognized, Afghanistan of today is understood, appreciated, uh, and seen as as a, as an asset, as a value, as a, as an achievement. And Afghanistan is of tomorrow is built based on gains of today and realizations from mistakes of yesterday. If that is the formula, then we're going to get to a lasting peace, a peace for all Afghans. If not, then I'm afraid it's going to take us longer to get to a lasting peace. But let's not forget, uh, you know, there are so many things that we can criticize about the peace process right now. But the two sides sitting at the table is unprecedented, is historic. And there are so many people who have helped uh, countries and people and individuals uh, have made sacrifices, made compromises. The government has made compromises, released so many Taliban prisoners. And I think it's time for the Taliban to also show a degree of flexibility if they are committed to a peace process. So let's understand that. What does flexibility mean? What do they, what do they need to be flexible about? I think some of the Taliban leaders in Doha who are negotiating on behalf of the Taliban have some questions to answer for themselves. First, who the Taliban are. Second, what Afghanistan of today looks like. They have been away for 20 years. Uh, you know, they went to Doha from Pakistan. Uh, they haven't seen Afghanistan firsthand. They have seen Afghanistan on television, like people, uh, you know, outside Afghanistan. And I think they need to ask themselves a very serious question, that even if somebody gives them the entire country, do they know what are they subscribing to? Do they know what are they really getting themselves into? Can they really manage this? Somebody was telling me, I think, years ago, that probably... Killing people and running an insurgency is much easier than trying to deal with climate change, with environment, cleaning a city like Kabul, you know, dealing with waste and, and, and water and construction. So governance um, and politics, I think, is, is much, much bigger than just opening fire at people. Yeah, it's always more difficult to build than it is to destroy. Exactly. So let's see if they come to an understanding that, um, yes, Afghanistan has changed. We should ask them these questions. We do ask them these questions privately and, and, and publicly on, on television. They say that, you know, they know. When I met them last, uh, I think uh, two months ago, uh, I told them, why don't you come to Kabul and talk to other Afghans, see what they want if Afghan views are important for you. I think they understand that, you know, at some point they need to engage with more Afghans than just a few. Because peace is not just for a group of people, I think. Uh, it's just for, for everyone. Ordinary Afghans have suffered a lot from, from war and they will benefit the most from peace. So they must be involved. No, that's great. 
Look, Flo, I, I usually start my conversations by asking my guests this question. I'd like to kind of ask you as well before our time ends today. I want to ask you in your own words, how do you kind of describe who you are? I think I'm I'm an Afghan who believes that if you really work hard, you can make a difference no matter how much resources you have. And then, of course, you know, I come from a country where it's full of traditions and values and and so many other connections um, that uh, this society really deeply cares about. I think I'm just an ordinary Afghan, but at the same time, I never underestimate the potential that um, one can have to make a difference, especially in a country like like ours, where a tiny difference is very valued, is very important. It's an interesting question to kind of um, not only think about, but also to carry every single day. Who am I? And how do I want to be in relationship with others? And how do I want to be in relationship with the world? It's an interesting question. But I mean, also too, I think it's important to just mention here that you're a prominent journalist and interviewer for Tolo News, which essentially all Afghans within Afghanistan and then Afghans abroad listen and watch on a daily basis. So in my experience and my observation, you're a remarkable proponent of pushing the boundaries and getting people to answer questions in a space that sometimes they don't have to answer in other places. For those of you that haven't watched Flood on television, watch him. He's great. He's really provocative ask really, really important questions of prominent people in this society that are making decisions for for the millions of Afghans that live here. So the way I kind of see you is I see you as the the gatekeeper and the person that holds the decision makers of the future Afghanistan accountable. <laughs> Thank you. That's how I see you. Yeah. Probably that's a better definition. <laughs> if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support and see you next time.